Well, as you have a seat, we continue in our worship by looking at God's Word together. So I would invite you, as we continue in our series in Genesis, to find your way to the book of Galatians. As we continue in Genesis, yes, find your way to the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 4. Well, I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. I just relocated from Iowa to Pennsylvania for Bible college, and it was my very first class on my very first day of school. And I went to a class that was called Old Testament History. And uh, we got in there, got to talking for a while. The professor got up front, and he asked this question. He said, somebody tell me How did someone in the Old Testament come to know God? Or how was someone in the Old Testament saved? And I had been to Awana, had grown up in church, so I very confidently raised my hand, and I said, Professor, someone is saved in the Old Testament by observing the law and keeping the sacrifices. And then right then I knew that was the wrong answer. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, Brad, you know, a lot of people think that. But I'm gonna show you that God, although he worked differently with people in the Old Testament, his salvation was exactly the same. Believing the promise that was to come or and in the New Testament, believing the promise of Jesus that has come. And I thought to myself, you know, it'd be really nice if I could get another crack at that question again. I'd like another opportunity. And God would give me that opportunity because that semester I failed Old Testament history and got to take it again as a sophomore. And that very same question came up again, and I thought, this time I'll let one of these freshmen take it. Guy answered it the very same way that I did. Before the professor could answer, I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Lackey, let me tell you how someone came to know Christ in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He works differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New, but the very same way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He said, yes, that is correct. Thanks for ruining that for me. (laughs) But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, to think that way. So often, if you were to ask someone in our society today, how is someone right with God? How do they have their sins forgiven? Or how do you know that one day you're going to go to heaven? The overall answer from people, even those that are in church, would say, by being a good person. By doing what is right. And if you were to go out calling with us as a church and knocking on doors, you would find that that would be much of the general answer from the people that live around our church. But this answer makes sense, doesn't it? When you think about your current life, getting ahead, everything is based upon how you perform. Your job promotion is because you worked hard. Your spot on the team is because you worked hard and practiced and you played well. You got a college scholarship because of your ACT score and your grades in high school. The money that you make is all based upon what you achieved. And so we think, well, therefore, it must be the same thing with God. This is how we come into a right relationship with him. But being right with God And the Christian life is altogether different than anything else. And what I want to bring out from our text today is two ways that we can approach God. One of those ways seems right to us, but ends in damnation. 
The other seems wrong, but that way ends in salvation. So I told you to turn to Galatians chapter 4, because our text in Genesis chapter 21 today is an allegory. That means that this account continues from where we left off with the birth of Isaac, tells us further about what happened after that. But Paul goes on to explain to us that what we're going to read in Genesis chapter 21 has a broader meaning than what we just read in that passage. He says that actually is much greater significance than just a historical account, account that you're going to read about because it pictures something greater that is to come. Much like when the Israelites were bitten by snakes, what healed them? A snake when they looked at the pole with the snake on top of the pole. And Jesus tells us that as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it was bigger than what was actually happening then. So this is a historical account, but it is more than a historical account of Sarah, Hagar, Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. But it tells us further, how does humanity try to pursue God? And so I'm going to start by reading in Genesis chapter 21, provide you with some running commentary that'll be, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me, and then we'll land in our main text in Galatians chapter 4. So Genesis 21, starting in verse 8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham. He was laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So the promised son, Isaac, is born that we saw last week. He is now about the age of three in Jewish culture. That's when they would wean a child. And Abraham throws him this huge, giant feast to celebrate. Now his older son, Ishmael, was 17 years old. And if you can imagine, a little bit jealous of his new half-brother that was now going to get the inheritance and everybody was excited about him so he laughs, begins to poke fun, and, and to tear down his little brother Isaac. Now, if you can imagine, this doesn't make Sarah very happy. And she's like, oh, no, you didn't just do that to my son. And she goes to her husband and says, listen, you have got to get them out of here. It's bad right now, and it's only going to get worse. Verse 11. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac your offspring shall be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took the bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So this, of course, that Sarah wants them to be sent away distresses Abraham. It's his son whom he loves. And this word distress is like curtains that are being blown in the wind. He doesn't want to send his son away, but God shows up and says, listen, it's good that you send them away, and I actually have plans for them, and I'm going to take care of them. So he sends them off with provisions into the desert. Well, Hagar and Ishmael, they get lost upon the way, and they find themselves in a dangerous place on the very edge of death. 
Verse 15 says, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Now he's 17, that word child is anybody under the age of 20. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So Paul is going to show us that this text is a foreshadow of the things that are to come. Namely, that it pictures two ways we attempt to be right with God. And the first way that we attempt to be right with God is by trusting ourselves, by trusting yourself. Galatians 4, 21, where we pick up in our text this morning. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by the free woman. But the son of the slave woman was according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, being children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now on the outset of that, it seems a little confusing, but we're going to try to make this very clear this morning as to what Paul's point is with this passage. See, in Galatians, they were all concerned about being good. That's how God was pleased with you, but not just being good, but keeping God's law. And when we think of God's law, we think of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, but the law came to be all the Old Testament itself. And the people in the book of Galatians thought that keeping the ceremonial rules and regulations of the law was how they were fully made right with God. So Paul goes to them and he starts talking to them with what they're looking to for salvation. He says, tell me. You who really desire to be under the law, do you know what the law requires of you? The law requires 100% obedience at all times. And if you do not keep it 100% all the time, consequences are going to be met. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 says, curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. So he says, if you don't keep the whole law, you are cursed. James in the New Testament then tells us, he says, if you keep the law but mess up in one area, you're guilty of the whole thing. Even the best of law keepers, the best people in this life, can't keep the law in its entirety. Many of you know our our administration pastor, Abe, Abe Miller, who's awesome and we love him. And part of his job is for the staff to make sure that they are doing everything the right way. Following the procedures, he's enforcing those things and making sure that we are following the rules the best way that we can to be effective as a church. And oftentimes, like, man, stop putting the rules on me, man. And so one time, Abe was riding with myself and a bunch of other students. He was going to lead us on a wilderness trip up to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. And we're driving up there on this desolate road. No one else is out there except for one police car. And it's coming the opposite direction. And we see him blow by us, and then all of a sudden, do like the 180 turnaround, lights come on, I realize we're getting pulled over. But I wasn't driving. Abe was. 
And he got off with a warning. But I just sat there in that seat. I didn't say anything, but inside I was just loving it. It's kind of like the Vikings quarterback, just the third best day of my life, gave my life to Christ, got married, and this day. That's kind of how I felt about it. Because it told me even the best of law keepers, those that are all about doing the rules, they can't keep the law and are under a curse and are in need of rescue. You think about the worst person. Maybe Hitler comes to your mind. And then you think about the best person, perhaps Mother Teresa or someone like that. Did they commit the same sins? No, absolutely not. But were either one of them perfect? No, absolutely not. So what does the Bible say? Both of them without Jesus are cursed. So what does that tell you about you and me? Are you as bad as Hitler? No, and you're like, yeah, see, I'm, I'm doing all right. But are you as good as Mother Teresa? Hmm, maybe not so much. So what's that say about you and me? We're lawbreakers and we're under a curse from God. Paul says the remedy that we try to go to is to keep the law to make us law, to keep us from being lawbreakers. He says that's the wrong way to do it. He says you're going the way of Hagar. Hagar represents those who are trying to bring about salvation in their own strength through good works. The text says the son of the slave woman was born according to flesh. So Ishmael's birth came about in a natural way. Abraham didn't wait on God, but decided to bring about things in his own strength. Now Abraham did show faith in that moment, but the problem was he showed faith in himself as his own savior that he was going to make the things of God come about. And this was the type of thinking the text says that comes from Mount Sinai. That's where the law was given in the old covenant. And this is how the earthly Jerusalem fought. They were really concerned about being good. Jerusalem was a very moral place, so it seemed on the outside, because they wrongfully thought that by keeping God's law, it was going to make them right with him. So we would assume then that the law is bad, but we'd be incorrect in that assumption because the scriptures tell us that the law is good. Romans 7 verse 7 says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So Paul says, listen, the law is good because it shows me what sin is is. Romans 2.15 tells us that the law of God or God's moral code has been written on the heart of every man. So every single person, whether we try to suppress it or not, has this feeling inside placed by God that says we don't measure up. And then God's written law, his word, reveals to us, yes, what your feelings you're having inside are true according to my word. You don't measure up. So the law in some ways is like a level. Have you ever tried to hang a picture frame by just eyeballing it? And then your friend walks into the house and like, your, your picture is way off. It's like, no, it's not. And then you talk about it for a while and you say it's straight. But how do you actually determine who's correct? You get out the level. Because the level, when it's held up to it, shows you where it's off and how to make it correct. But the thing is, the level itself can't correct the picture frame, can it? 
It can't go up there and it just releases from your hand and does it itself. It must be acted upon by someone. So the law shows us how we can be fixed, but we try to use it in a way that was never meant to be used to save. 1 Timothy 1.8 tells us that the law is good only if it is used properly. So there is a wrong way to use the law, and that is to see it as your savior, to have it try to do what it was never meant to do. Here's a little formula that we'll complete by the end here, but it may be helpful to you. It starts with, you are bad. Let that sink in for a moment, okay? You are bad. Your mouth is an open grave. You don't seek God. I don't do anything good on my own, and I need a savior. The law is good, it's perfect, but it is not the Savior. That's why verse 30 of this text says, cast out the slave woman. You have to cast out this way of thinking you can be a good person in order to be saved. Trying to keep the law damns you. It does not save you. So then what's the solution? Well, very simply this morning, and many of you know this already, but you need to be reminded of these truths today. The solution is trust Jesus as Savior instead of yourself. Trust Jesus as Savior instead of yourself. Look at verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So Isaac was not born through man's scheming, but according to God's promise. And it had to be God's promise because she had never given birth, Sarah that is. She was 90 years old. It was not going to happen naturally. Something supernatural was going to have to happen in order for Sarah to have a child. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, so your salvation can't happen naturally. It doesn't, it's not something that you can do. It has to be something that's brought about by God. That's why Jesus in John chapter three says, unless a man is born again by the spirit, something that God does, he will never or is not able to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So the law shows you you're wrong and Jesus is able to make you right. Heavenly Jerusalem is free, it says. And it says that the heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. Now, that's kind of an interesting way to talk, isn't it? Mother is uh, where you come home to, feels like home, your city that you come home and you smell mom's pot roast being cooked and it feels, this just feels right. I'm home, no matter where you're coming from. But it also talked about that your mother city was where your citizenship was. It's where you had rights. It's where you had an inheritance. So Paul says, our city is not the earthly Jerusalem, but it's the heavenly one where righteousness dwells. Ephesians chapter 2 says, although if you are in Christ, you're here physically, spiritually, you are already with Christ in the heavenly realms. You have a seat up there. That's your true city. That's your true home. And that's why we have this longing to be away from here because our hearts are already with God in the heavenly places. He says, this is where you belong, and it's a work that only God can do. The way of Hagar brought slavery but the way of Sarah through Jesus brought freedom.
But how is it that trusting Jesus qualifies someone to be right with God when the law demands 100% perfection? Here's how. Jesus fulfilled the law in his perfect life. Jesus confirms that the law is good. He didn't hate the law. In fact, he said in the book of Matthew, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but instead I have come to fulfill them. And every aspect of Jesus' life was all about fulfilling the law where human beings had failed. Did you ever wonder why Jesus was baptized? I mean, he had nothing to repent of. Why his baptism? Well, he tells us, he shows up and John's like, whoa, 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 I'm not baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But this is what Jesus says to him. In Matthew chapter 13, it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it so now be, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus says, listen, John, you need to baptize me because I need to fully fulfill the law in with my life. So Jesus completely kept the law 100% that no human being had ever done nor ever will do. So here's the completion of that formula. You are bad. Let that sink in again, all right? Sometimes you need to be reminded of that. You are bad in need of a savior. The law is good, but not the savior. Jesus, good fulfilled the law in your place, qualified to be the Savior. But see, the problem in Galatians was they believed that Jesus was a Savior, but Jesus alone wasn't enough to complete their salvation. Jesus got them into a relationship with God, but they were perfected by their good works and their law-keeping. And Paul says, no, Jesus does the whole thing. Are you so now foolish that you have come to Christ that now you feel you need to be perfected by the flesh, he said? And then I think this is so many of us in this room and so much of me in my life. This feeling of I got into the kingdom because of Jesus. But, and God looks at me and says, yeah, I accept you into this kingdom, but I don't like you very much. I only accept you because you placed your trust in Jesus. And I had this constant feeling of now Jesus has wiped my slate clean from my sins and now it's my responsibility to fill it up with good so that God will fully accept me. And I would try and I'd work so hard at it and then I'd fail miserably and I'd feel like that it got washed away again and I would try over and over again and I just lived in constant regret and in constant shame thinking that God was very, very displeased with me. But then what I'm gonna tell you next completely changed my life. It gave me freedom. And I started to have victory. It released me from pornography. It released me from life-dominating sins that I was struggling with when I understood this, that Jesus gives me his perfect record. And what does that mean, that Jesus gives you his perfect record? That means that when you come to know Jesus, he not only takes your sins away, but before God, God the Father now sees you as completely keeping the law because you've been unified to Christ. 
So he sees you in complete perfection that your sins are gone and also in complete obedience. And when I realized this, it, it overwhelmed me with God's grace and I started to have victory in my life. You see, the, the Bible doesn't tell us that the key to the Christian life is to try harder. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, okay, you've messed up, now try harder. What does it say? It says confess and repent. Now, so many of us, when we fail, we go, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder at this. But instead, we need to confess and repent and say, God, I have broken your law. I have sinned against you. And I know that this does not affect my acceptance before you. But it, my sin has drived a wedge in our fellowship. My sin does not please you. I thank you that Jesus fulfilled the law in my place and I could never keep it. Oh God, would you cleanse me of my sin, knowing that you still accept me. Help me to grow to be more like you. The law is also good for us now. Like a level God's, the law of God's word, that is. Here's why you need to be in God's word. Just as the level shows you vertically if things are right or not, in the same way, God's word shows us if we're out of sync or out of touch with our relationship with God. Same way, horizontally, the word of God shows us when we're out of sync or out of alignment with other Christians. The really holiness and growing in Christ, our pastor has said this before, it is adjusting ourselves to God. So we look at God's word, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we adjust ourselves in ways that our lives don't measure up with God's commands and his desires. And God is pleased with this. And if we are changed by God, it should be our desire to live a sincere life and a passion to follow his commands. Now, some of us look at that and go, whoa, 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 bro. Do not tell me to follow God's commands. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace, brother. That's legalism. No. Legalism is looking to the law to find further acceptance from God, to find love for God. When you have a sincere desire and passion to follow God, that's not legalism. That's called godliness. That's what God develops in you when you realize you have his love and you want to love him in return, not for acceptance, but out of the acceptance that you've received to, to and from him. So shame on us when we cheapen his grace. If you're out there this morning and you think, oh, that's okay, I'll just confess it. Repent. Turn from your sin. Don't cheapen the grace of God that costs you nothing but costs Jesus everything in order for you to have it for free. Turn to God. Thank him for salvation and live a life that is devoted to him. And what kind of church would we be? What kind of church would we be? God is blessing us greatly now. But if we had not just a few, but if everyone committed to living lives with a deep passion and desire to live out the commands of God from his grace, what couldn't God do? Yes, he uses us in spite of all our failures. We're not going to be perfect. But what if we all committed to that, to be living on mission, to pursue lives of holiness, doing that together? Oh, my. Let's commit ourselves to God and to his word and keeping his commands and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where freedom comes from. The exchange of the law, which brings slavery, 
freedom in Christ. It's for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, don't give, go back to your former way of bondage, but live in freedom that Christ has given to us. You know, I had a second opportunity in that Bible class to answer correctly after I had failed. But really, God is giving you that question to each and every one of us this morning. How are you right with God? What does it take for you to stand before a holy God and not experience his wrath, but to experience his love and his grace? What does that take for you to pass that test? And that test, that answer must be answered in this life. What you do with Jesus in this life will determine what happens to you in the next one. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. No second chances. Here's the good news. Tim Keller says religion is for those people who are good. That's what religion is all about. It's about good people. But the gospel is for those who know they are not good. So when you get to that point of realizing that I can offer God nothing, all my righteousness, all my good deeds are as filthy rags before him, that's when you're ready for salvation. And that's where you have two choices to make. Trust Jesus. I'm sorry, let me start over again. That's when you have two choices to make. You can either trust yourself and be cursed and bear all the curse that comes from trying to keep the law and not being able to, to bear the wrath of God forever in hell. Or secondly, you can choose to trust Jesus and let him take your curse when he hung on the cross, it says, cursed is any man that hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus Christ was cursed when he hung upon the cross. He experienced divine rejection. God turned his back on him and unleashed his anger over your sins and mine upon Jesus. And so the question is, do you want Jesus to take your curse? The perfect law keeper who died and rose again for those who are lawbreakers so that we can have acceptance from God. He was rejected so you don't have to be. Won't you believe him? Let that acceptance that you're longing for, that your heart says you don't measure up to, won't you believe in Jesus? Have your sins forgiven and be given his perfect obedience. We started off by reading Genesis chapter 21, and we saw that they were left in the desert in a, in a terrible state. But they cried out to God, and God heard them. He didn't leave them in their desperation, but he came and he brought them to water, and they lived. God will do the same thing for you in your desperate situation. Because if you don't know Jesus, you're in a desperate situation right now, even if you don't realize it. But if you call upon Jesus Christ, he will deliver you. He will save you. He will bring you into a relationship with God. One that isn't based upon your performance, but upon the perfect performance of his son, Jesus Christ. God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the grace that you've lavished upon us. We thank you that you offer it to us freely, but that it came at a great price the price of your son. God, we thank you for your law that it shows us our sin and drives us to a savior.
God, I pray that those people who don't know you this morning, and there are some here that don't know you, that the law would drive them to you. Not to say, I can do this, I can work it out, I can be good enough. No, you can't. Place your faith in Christ. God, I pray for the the believer here that's still very law-driven, that is looking to the law to perfect them. Jesus is the author, the starter of our faith, and also the perfecter. May they find assurance in that and confidence to go forward and to grow in you in freedom and grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.